Hi there, and welcome back to the Creative Endeavor Podcast. This is the podcast bringing you inspiring stories from creative professionals from around the world. It's real conversations with real artists. And in this episode, we're kicking off season three with Kenneth Yaris. Now, Kenneth Yaris is a young artist from Montana in the United States, and he paints some killer knockout landscapes. With such a bold use of color and compositions, his paintings really tell a story, and they're very reminiscent of the old greats like Bierstadt and Thomas Moran. I've been following Kenneth on Instagram for many years, and we've even talked back and forth through messages, talking about maybe me going there and painting plein air or him coming to New Zealand to do some plein air painting. Either way, I hope that pans out. But he's just such a joy to talk to. And in this conversation, we went all kinds of different directions. But primarily, my main goal with each and every one of these podcast episodes is to unlock something else, is to figure out another way that an artist is out there doing it. Because it's by hearing their stories and learning from their experience, their triumphs, their trials, whatever it is, there's something that we can learn and plug in to our own creative journey. And this episode was no different. Kenneth was so inspiring. The way he talked about his upbringing, his early influences, and even getting into the technical talk about how he creates one of his magnificent paintings. But also, we had an opportunity to reflect on some of the things that are going on in today's world. I mean, in case you haven't noticed, it's a changing world out there. And there's some things that we're going to have to face as artists, like AI, And how do you deal with a paradigm shift like that? It was really interesting getting Kenneth's take on that subject. Now, right now, of course, you're listening to the audio version of this podcast. But if you want to see the video version, along with some visuals that Kenneth is going to share, and we get a really cool glimpse into his studio, then make sure you're following me at my online academy. That's where I share the exclusive video version of the podcast. And I also have some images of Kenneth's particular artistic process of how he puts together a painting. I've got that to share with my online academy too. So if that sounds interesting to you, and you also want access to exclusive video content that I don't upload anywhere else, and a lot of talk on the art business in particular, including loads of talk on oil painting technique, then make sure you follow that link in the show notes. It's included in the description along with this podcast episode. Go and follow me at my online academy. And if you don't love it after your first month, your money back guaranteed, no questions asked. So you got nothing to lose and no excuses not to level up your art in 2023. I'll see you there. Now, if you want to follow Kenneth Yaris, he can be found online on Instagram at Kenneth Yaris, and his last name is spelt Y-A-R-U-S, and also on his website at www.kennethyaris.com. Man, I had such a blast talking to Kenneth. I can't wait to share this conversation with you. So without further ado, let's get into it. Here's Kenneth Yaris and the Creative Endeavor.
Yes, brother, how are you, man? I'm doing great. How are you? Good. Good to see you. Man, it's it's been it's been a long time coming. We we've been talking about this back and forth, back and forth for Gosh, maybe the better part of a year. I, when I was doing the creative endeavor last, I, I really wanted to connect with you, and and then uh, I ended up putting the creative endeavor podcast on on a shelf for a little while. But um, it's so good to kick off creative endeavor third season three Let's call it uh, here with you. So welcome to the podcast. Oh man, it's a huge honor. Like I said, I've I've been just eagerly waiting this. It's it's a big. Big point of excitement for me, and thank you for having me. Oh, look, man. Uh, no, I, I, I'm so, so excited to get into whatever we have to talk about. So if you're cool, let's just jump straight into it. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. So look, obviously, uh, we've been following each other for, for years. I, I think I might have been following you first, okay? I found you online on Instagram, and, and I was looking at these paintings just going, this is unbelievable, the quality of work. It's just incredibly well executed, beautiful landscapes. Uh, people would have heard from the introduction a, a bit about what you do. So I hope by now they've been able to go and just follow you on Instagram, check out your website. But obviously these paintings and how well executed they are, this is the result of countless hours of toil in the studio, experimentation, dedication, what I'd really love to know is where did this start and when did this start for you? Because you're, you're a young guy. You, you've, you obviously started last week. So, so how, how did this all, how did this all happen for you? Take us back to the beginning. Yeah, sure. No, it's, it's, you're, you're not wrong about it. The, the endless hours of toil. I mean, that's, and I think the listeners of your podcast will know that there's no, I wouldn't necessarily say there's no such thing as talent, but there's absolutely a, uh, an assumption that this comes easy to people and it, it, it just doesn't, there's, I, mean, I think what I would try to think of outside of talent would be aptitude, you know, and that would be something maybe that I had really, really young as a kid, just being known as the art kid and having family, thankfully that supported that. That's a, you know, I can't really stress that enough that whatever that childhood is like, you know, being encouraged into the arts was something that I had on my side. And I can't take credit for that. You know, it's just really cool family and and supportive community that that made the arts feel attractive and rewarded me for it. So yeah, since just being a little little lad, I was always drawing. And my mom would talk about just you know me throwing hissy fits if I couldn't draw before school or draw when I got out of school, and I would get in trouble with teachers for drawing during class. You know, it was just like a constant thing for me. So it's that's talent. I don't know, just thousands of hours of doodling on top of actual training. So in, in high school, I was really fortunate to have a really, really fantastic art teacher. I, I think without her, you know, I don't know what you'd call that, like the divine connecting of that, that happening. Cause she's made several professional artists um, that are still painting and drawing in our community now that all went through her, her high school time. And it's just a pivotal time for a young person to kind of start conceptualizing their future. So Susan Guthrie was a huge, huge proponent of me pursuing the arts and doing trips to Europe and stuff like that, that were able to expose me to just master paintings. And that kind of, you know, broadened the scope of a little country boy like me. And it really was inspiring. So I think without her, I wouldn't be where I'm at. Um, but, you know, the training during high school is always just kind of 
you're in a mixed class with tons of skill levels and and I didn't I don't think I really got into it until I left high school to get into the academies so I studied with uh, the Bilmes family so Semyon Bilmes and Daniel Bilmes who you've actually interviewed yeah, he was one yeah, of my teachers know, oh fantastic awesome yep yep and that was that was right out of high school and I did a couple little stints this is a little side story but it's one that I always want to stress because I know again people are listening to this podcast like I I tried to go to the traditional college um we're reading a Forbes article you know for the best art schools in America and seeing this uh Chicago Art Institute the SAIC and and that was one of the top schools and my parents saw the price tag for admission I think it was like forty thousand dollars a year back then um, wow. So who knows what it is now, but they thought, hold on, kid, we're going to send you to a summer program. And yeah. that ended up saving me and them a ton of money and a lot of misery because I realized very quickly that the aims I had as an artist being inspired by the old masters and, and all that was just like, they, even though it was the finest art school in America, they had not a slightest idea on how to teach some of the fundamentals and so without that interge interjection in my life, I don't think I would have ended up where I am or found my way into the academies as soon. And I noticed that going to the academies that most of the students were in their 30s, 40s, 50s, even having been let down by the school system in America, at least in the scope of learning traditional, you know, the craft of picture making. So it was, I think, very fortunate that I kind of went that route and ended up in the academies like I did. And that's, you know, there's a whole other thing, to, but they yeah, there's a lot to unpack there about the, the art schools and academies. And I want to come back to that. Um, but I, I'm curious because you, you touched on so many things there, um, with that, that wonderful introduction, but how were your parents artistic at all? What were they, were they in the arts? Were they, were they a bit, you know, creative, crafty or anything like that? Uh, no, not at all. Um, wow. Really, actually, not at all. Uh, there's, I mean, I would say that my, they probably both have the ability to like do some light sketching, but both are very, very, uh, they both run it. They run a small business together doing heating and air conditioning. So they're, they're very, you know, they're working people. And, yeah. but what happened, I think the real feeding element of this is a bit of a family history because my grandpa, who I didn't get to meet, he died when my mom was only 16. So he actually was artistically inclined. He had studied at schools in England and was actually a professional draftsman before they had, you know, computer aided design and all that. I mean, he actually would hand draw mechanical things and, and did, you know, we have a portrait of Winston Churchill he did and stuff like that. So he really was artistically inclined, but in post-war England, you know, he was always told that you can't have a family if you're going to be an artist, the kind of mythologies mixed in with lots of, unfortunate facts you know for people that it's definitely harder <laughs> to manage things financially as, a, as an artist but anyway he had to kind of leave that behind and I think my mom took that and I'm literally named after him so he was his name was Kenneth and I'm Kenneth and um I think there's been this weird kind of uh I don't know like a, a kind of push from a whole nother level that's not driven by their own creative process necessarily but by their just love for art and and an honoring of him that's helped push that further. That's fantastic because there's something definitely coming through in the work. And so I'm looking at you here for those 
fortunate enough to be watching the video version of this podcast, I'll be able to get a glimpse into the studio of Kenneth Yaris. And right now I'm just looking at some epic paintings, brother, like really inspiring stuff. I, I do want to do a deep dive into the technical uh, aspects of painting and really pick your brain there. Cause I think I could learn a lot from you just from just hearing you unpack your process. But, you know, I, I, you, you touched on something there and, and as you said, it, it, it's, it, triggered something in me. So I went on a bit of a stint in uh, January and, and on into February. Now we're in March and I, and I just started, uh, I put down some of the videos I shouldn't have been watching, you know, the, the, the conspiracy th stuff. I was a little getting a little bit heavy into that, that kind of alternative media thing. And it was really hijacking my consciousness. And I went on this bender of just listening to personal development, some motivation stuff, some spiritual stuff as well. And, and I came across this book called um, Building a Story Brand um, by Donald Miller. Highly recommend it for anybody in a creative business. Yeah, write that one down. And um, it, it, it's, it's caused me to think about things in terms of myth and story. And you know about uh, Joseph Campbell's Hero's Journey? Have you, have you heard of that? Where no, no. Uh, well, it's it's a, it's a classic framework for narrative, and every movie that seems to do really well, or every book, or every kind of film or, or narrative that we seem to have as part of our pop culture, it kind of follows the same structure. And so I, I start looking at my life in terms of that structure as well. But but what is it? I mean, it's the it's the Avatar, it's the Luke Skywalker in Star Wars, it's um it, it's it's uh it's it's the Dark Crystal. It's so basically it, you have a hero who encounters a problem. They're not a hero yet. They start off as something uh, ordinary. Then there's a call. And then they see they need to rise to that call before they can become the hero, but they're missing a vital piece. And that's where the guide steps in. And so at that point in the story, when the guide steps in, they set the hero off on the journey and the quest is laid out in front of them and they have to make it through adversity to ultimately become the hero at the end or heroine. And, and it doesn't matter what story we're listening to. And so I, as I was listening to your story, it suddenly just popped into my long-winded way of putting this, but it popped into my mind, where's the guide? Where's the guide? Because there's, there's got to be a guide here in, in Kenneth Yaris's story. In, in this in this mythology, which is just beautiful, and and you mentioned the high school, your high school teacher. Her name, one more time. It's Susan Guthrie. Susan Guthrie. So so, can you take me back to the to the classroom? Because I mean, I I, I won't wax on about my experience with high school. It didn't sound anything like yours. It was pretty terrible. But I can relate to drawing during class and getting in trouble for that. But what was that moment like of being in the in, in her class? And do you feel that that was really the thing then that that set you off? Oh yeah, I mean, I think well, man, it's it's. Susan was absolutely the the regular, I would almost say like boots on the ground element of, of mentor to me where amongst all the chaos of high school, you know, you're just emotionally wrecked, you're covered in acne and just life's hell. Um, you know, I can't say I enjoyed high school either, but she was always the reprieve for me being able to, you know, I remember actually skipping school attendance rallies or whatever they're called, you know, where they have like these, these big stupid parades for sports and stuff that I just wasn't into and being allowed to sneak back to the art classroom and we'd have our little like art hideout in there with a couple of the other art nerds and that kind of stuff was so empowering you know and and helps reinforce this you know that mythology that we have that like art is an escape for me and I think that that started in those emotionally 
tumultuous times in high school. And she was just such a positive person. She is still to this day. And um, she's a friend still, which is awesome. Oh, great. And yeah. yeah, so there's there's her. And then even earlier than Susan, though, there's there's other mentors and quest guides, you know, like you're talking about that there's an actual world-class illustrator that lives three houses down from me that I had no idea about early on. You know, my parents somehow found out. And when I'm 10 years old or 11 years old, whatever the heck I was, being you know, allowed to go over there. And my parents say, Hey, you know, my kid likes to draw. Can he come see your studio and getting my mind just torn asunder with the coolness of what was happening in there. I mean, that's, it's a kind of like James Gurney level, like little armatures and sculptures and lighting marionettes and incredible sculptures of, or, uh, you know, paintings of knights and dragons and just like the coolest stuff. And so Greg call, that's his name and he's still a neighbor and still is Brad. And, uh, you know, the, those are the, the between him and that experience of seeing professional art walked out and and, you know, realistic art. You know, he was a drawing. You know, I remember getting prompts from him that like the, the kind of hero's guide like you're talking about, like, you know, I want to draw scenes from The Hobbit. I just read the book and loved it or whatever. And he'd be like, OK, let's do thumbnails. And I'd go do my five thumbnails, come back and he'd say, OK, go do five more. And I'd be all pissed come back with five more and he'd do one more time, go do five more thumbnails. So I'm going crazy. Um, but yeah. it's all stuff that, you know, unbeknownst to me is a 13 year old, but like, it's a part of that creative process now that I think has given me a better handle on design. You know, I mean, it's, mm. it's so much support was poured in to me in those pivotal years that maybe it wasn't as structured and disciplined as what Michelangelo or, you know, some of these old school guys that got, way back in time you know it, it kind of came from a mix of sources but yeah i owe so much to those those people that that were in my life at that time yeah i mean it's it's very much the wax on wax off you know and and i think there, there's a lot of people that are starting out when they look at somebody like you you know a professional artist that is just kicking these massive goals and doing these knockout paintings i think there's always the assumption that somehow this is easy because you, the truth is you make it look easy, but they're not counting the, those wax on, wax off moments. And, and, and what is that? I mean, it's that repetition of the boring stuff. Um, and and, and I, I don't know, like when I, when I look at artists now, such as yourself, I, I get insanely excited because I want to hear about those moments of, of boredom, of, of just the, the tedious just almost dreariness of, of, of having to do the same thing over and over again, because it's repetition that drills these things so deep within your, your psyche. And so you're able to call upon them when it really counts. And, and, and again, I mean, I, I say wax on wax off because it reminds me of, of, uh, of Mr. Miyagi, you know, we're, we're going to, we're going to wax the car. Now we're going to paint the fence. And then something is, well, what is all this? And then he throws a punch and now suddenly he's blocking, he's doing all this stuff. So, I mean, and there's another hero's journey for you, the karate kid, but it's, it's, it's really exciting. So, so you come out of high school and then you go in and, and you start your, your next level of training. After that, when you're just branching out into becoming a professional artist, can you tell me about that moment in your life, in your artistic journey, and what that was like for you? And 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 how did you get? And maybe tell me about your 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 first break there. Sure, absolutely. So, well, and 
on a note really quick with what you had just mentioned, something that I've always loved and lived, I've had as a background on my computer that touches on what you just mentioned is uh, it's attributed to Aristotle, but it's apparently kind of a more 70s rewording of a longer essay of his, but it's something that I've come to rely a lot in my life and it might help some listeners out is um, excellence is not an act, but a habit. And oh, I love that, that part, I guess the beginning part is we are what we repeatedly do. And so anyway, that saying has always kind of manifested to me with, with whether it was, you know, even things like fitness, you know, it's like, you don't go to the gym and get strong after one session, like things just take time and, and repetition. And the more at peace you can be, um, that's, that's hard in our modern day where we want everything really fast, but, but anyway, yeah, that, that's just another, again, we could talk for hours about all that good stuff, but but that that is that is awesome. I mean, you are the accumulation of your habits. I I, I want to throw another uh, book out there just since you mention it, uh, Atomic Habits uh, Atomic Habits by James Clear. Um, that that book is is really um, kind of blowing up, you know. And, and there's um there, there's a lot of people that have gotten into that, and and James Clear has just done fantastic with that book. But I that's one of my favorites. I've listened to the audio version now three times. And it oh, really cool. drove into me that it's it's an accumulation, it's an aggregation of tiny little gains. And when you plot that out like a graph, that 1% improvement or that tiny little gain from a consistent habit ends up compounding over time. But the opposite is true of decreasing or at least continuing with the bad habits that you got, you know, and, and then, then that, that accumulates and you start getting that graph going down the other way. And, and it really drilled into me that the, the power of good habits, but also, you know, becoming a little bit more con conscious about the artistic habits that I had, you know, going back to those fundamentals. But um, what, what, so, so back to the, the trajectory here, sure. uh, yeah, it, it, because you, I mean, I, in recent years, and I hope you don't mind me saying this, but I've just been, I've been looking at some of the posts you've been making on Instagram and I'm just like, good night. This is world-class painting. You know, Bierstadt would be shuddering. He would be, he would be going, okay, I've got a rival here, you know, and I'm not just saying that, bro. Like some of your stuff is just knockout crazy good. So, so you, you, obviously not everybody starts off painting amazingly well like we all start somewhere right but when did you first realize you're like oh shoot i i could actually make this work as a gig well yeah so in that you know the questions you both questions where you're talking about you know kind of how you get going and and some advice i got really early on that made a huge difference especially you know coming from academies there's there's this and it's not bad but the learning drive and the the excellence obsession that they have is it can become handicapping there there can become this level where you know like one of the things that felt stressed to me it may maybe wasn't as verbal as i am making it out to be but it's like you're not good enough yet um and that i think is a little damaging and in, in that you kind of when the when you make work a body of work and you try to go sell it and you're out into this this other realm that's not in that insulated academia way where it's all about getting the perspective of the feet right or the angles of the muscles right or whatever you know nuts and bolts that matter to artists you know you do need to matter to other people and so 
early on getting into some of these Western art shows and even just having a rep, um, his name is Steve Codry, and he's like a kind of a local legend. He helps manage his wife's art career, but he is just all business all the time. I mean, brutal, brutal business. And he's great at it and he's hilarious. And he was, he kind of took me under, under his wing and helped me get into some shows. And those little bits of propulsion really matter. And you start to see your work in frames, start to see your work getting observed by people, getting advertised. And I, I did these ballerina paintings that were, they're fine. <laughs> you know, they were great. And, uh, but they helped me understand that like, you know, you're going to end up doing this for money and the ballerinas took off. I started having these like backlogs of ballerina paintings to do and kind of commissions for them. And, and I started getting this heart palpitation kind of thing of like, I, I hate this. I don't want to paint ballerinas. And wow. realizing that, you know, if you're not careful, you get sucked down the rabbit hole on that. And, you know, the galleries I work with still to this day, but I remember being kind of stressed out and asking them like, Hey, what do I do right now? And he's like, you got to stop painting ballerinas. He's like, what do you want to paint? And I said, landscape and being empowered in that way really opened the doors um, because I was really trying to like fit into a scene or fit in with what was working. And that, that was going to go nowhere ultimately as weird as that sounds like it wasn't until I felt empowered to step onto my journey of, as an artist and getting away from the academia, getting away from how things should be done into this kind of new open realm has been so much more fun, but also successful because I think now you're out there doing something kind of new, at least to a degree. I was like, Beardstat's been around doing that forever. So he's one of my big heroes. So Beerstadt's amazing. I mean, he's one of my favorites too. I, I I don't remember ever seeing an original. Uh, I I I imagine I I might have at some point, maybe as a kid back in the states, but most of what I've seen has just been reproduction. So I'd, I'd relish the opportunity to to gaze upon an original and just stand there. Um, but it would, would you, so would you say like looking at some of the originals of him and, and what were some of the, the European masters? Cause you mentioned that you, you, you got to see some of those epic works. What are some of the standouts for you that, that impacted you? Well, in, I mean, we went through the Uffizi in Florence and then wow. just being around Rome in general and, and, you know, the Sistine Chapel, all those, those kind of huge and a lot of them were frescoes they're not really like a painting they're in that mural category at that point but they're just that scale and the the kind of you know the reality that like a human hand made that you know is it's it's europe is full of that kind of just mind-boggling stuff and we have big buildings here and some amazing stuff they're all just concrete and machinery but it's like this was hand carved by by dudes and people died making some of those buildings. So I wouldn't say it was even just one particular masterpiece of being, you know, that changed me in that, but in just seeing the scope of what human hands and minds can do and just having that kind of just blow my lid, you know, just was amazing. And the real shift, I mean, if I want to think about that kind of, it was in New York city. So going to academies, and and struggling with kind of what do I do now? And I left school early. I was kind of a rebel. Um, didn't do anything right. Uh, but in New York was where I was really having an identity crisis, struggling with depression. I mean, New York City is is horrible. Uh, but that's coming from a country kid. A lot of people that love it there. Obviously, ten million of them do. But it's it's horrible. It's a nightmare. 
in every possible way, really. But the Met I was apologize like to New Yorkers you. right now. Sorry, sorry, New I'm, Yorkers. <laughs> they can email me, and I will. I oh, <laughs> direct I, all complaints to Kenneth Yars. I, I made it a year, and that was people said if you make it two, you're stuck. You know, you'll find your little groove in the city, and and um, and you'll get stuck there. But and so I left after a year. So my time at GCA, so I went to the Ashland Academy of Art, and then moved to the Grand Central Academy of Art, and that was when they were in right in Manhattan. So it was, you know, it's just circumstances, you know, I had to live in a little tiny doghouse apartment with another dude, but literally, I mean, oh, the stories of New York are, are so, so many and so bad, but it was, it was a great time of challenge, which is what a young man needs. And I, uh, you know, back to the, how art, art really felt like a reprieve and that I would get to go to the Met and see just these felt like breaths of fresh air, you know, and, and that reminder that what I was doing in academies mattered and that the training that brought these pieces to life was similar training. What I'm doing now was always a constant pat on the back, but I would go and stand in front of this Thomas Moran painting. And uh, yeah. it's just a scene of the Tetons. And I did a study after of it a couple of years ago, but that painting changed my life. Cause I would sit there in the midst of my homesickness and just hating New York and see pine trees. And I could feel like I could feel that cold air and the, the sun on the mountain is just, I literally almost cried several times looking at it and being so homesick and, and longing, but also it, it helped galvanize that like, that's where, that's where I belong. I can't, I can't help but feel that. And, mm -hmm. and so that, that, that painting drove me kind of back West and back into the realm of landscape. Cause I'd been studying portraiture and I mean, from early age, I always loved illustration and stuff. So I felt like a bit of a nomad for a while there, but that painting really, was like the landing lights that I needed to say, go home. This is, this is where it needs to be. You know, when I, um, when I was going through art school, the lecturers said something to me, it was the darndest thing. They're like, um, I, I had some painting lecturers, um, you know, almost bad mouth painting, certainly traditional painting. And it was all about concept. It was in the academic world. It's, it's all about the idea and I came to find that it was it was actually an utter utter lack of ideas. Um, it was quite funny, um, but but what you describe there is almost a a spiritual experience that you're having in front of a work. But it's not a, a worshiping of the work like some sort of idol. It's not you're not you're not looking at the work. It, it sounds almost like what the artist was doing as well was touching on something that I feel as humanity, we all have that in common, that we're trying to search for something greater and something more, and we find it and connect to it instantly when we're in the presence of nature and creation. And, and there's something that just draws our spirit out. I, I find that so much in the landscape, but then when you get you know, in the hands of a talented artist, you know, like our, our heroes from the past, they they hit that nerve. They're like, no, no, this is what you're looking for. And so for something that's universal, for something that is so, you know, human, it's, it almost feels like home in, in, in a real deep sense. It seems like such an insane thing to then want to drive that out of a person when they're funneled through this bottleneck of the academic system. It's like, no, 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 that's been done. So we can't do that anymore. Well, who says so? 
Who cares? Like th- this is, and, and that's the one thing I got. That was my criticism uh, that I received was this is no longer a valid form of expression. I, I don't see anything that could be more valid than, than touching that nerve within yourself because the authenticity shines through and, and your, your authenticity, man, just comes through. And, and it's this consistency over, over that body of work. And, and I, so I'm glad, look, I'm sure the ballerinas were awesome. I'm, I, I think you're probably being a little bit too hard on yourself there, but the, the, the work now, man, I'm glad you, you went for the landscapes. Cause these are, these are shocking. They're, they're beautiful. So take, take me back then. So you're, you're, you're starting off as a professional. You're, you're now your agent has kind of taken you under the wing. Where did that first big break come through? Did you have a solo show or was there commissions that started to mount up? Professionally speaking, when did you see those cogs really start to turn for you? It's unfortunately, I can't really claim that there's been a break and hopefully that can be a consolation to folks listening that like, you know, I can be one of those, those, you know, kind of grinded out people. It just took, there was a show that happens in great falls. I actually just did it again a couple of weeks ago. Uh, there's a Montana artist named Charlie Russell who died, you know, a long time ago. I was just a Montana cowboy artist and he, there's a museum there and lots of, uh, you know, they do a whole first birthday. There's a whole thing called Western art week over there. Charlie Russell days and all these artists get together, but getting a room there and where I could display my art, it all happens in this weird hotel. Uh, it's, you know, one of those kind of local things. It's a Montana thing, but it was, sorry, just, it was enough of that. What I mentioned earlier, where you are putting your work in front of people and repping it yourself. So it wasn't like a, you know, it wasn't like an art in the park. It's a little bit above art in the park, but, mm-hmm. but a kind of similar thing where you're just there repping your paintings and, and that experience was so, so, so beneficial because I was around lots of professional artists and welcomed in, which was really nice, even though I made really bad stuff um, in that era. They, there was fans that you develop and, and people that loved watching me progress that were excited to see me come back the next year. So I can't really discount that, you know, those those kind of seemingly trivial, you know, like I think it'd be easier for a lot of artists to say, well, I'm not going to do a thing like that or I don't want to you know, go to that level or, or, you know, I don't know how people think that they deserve something to happen good for them, whether it's a gallery or a big show or, or whatever that it felt like the grind it out every year, I'd make 15, 20 paintings for that show. And when I couldn't get other galleries, that was kind of my big thing. And I was working other jobs and definitely not a professional artist, but I think there was roots growing, you know, underneath the ground, even though it was just a little crappy leaf on top, it stuff was happening, you know, and I, I don't want to discredit that that era of, I mean, I'm talking five, six years probably. And it wasn't until I moved kind of back to Montana and was able to basically move into this studio and with the support of my family, kind of be told, go, go full time. And with that, I gave myself a five-year window saying, okay, if I can't, this doesn't make sense in five years and it's going to want to call it and go do something else. And in that five year span, it's been amazing and worked, you know, but the, the big break never really happened. It's been just a slow slog and a, a, a you know, saying yes to things. It's a, there's a good movie called Yes Man, I think. It's yeah, got Jim yeah. Carrey. Yeah, I've heard and, of that. And uh, I think of that, it, like you just have to say yes to stuff. You show up to paint outs, you show up to gallery stuff, you show up to art events, and, and it slowly starts to shape into 
this this career and uh you know hopefully the next five years are just more of that and and i've got a i've had solo shows the last four or five years and they've all been great and sold well and and it's i i think none of them have been some big game changer but they all are are a confirmation that i'm going the right way and they're it's it's super nice to have galleries be behind me you know there's a lot and i know you've mentioned you know worked with lots of artists on this podcast with different approaches and so far i've been one on the gallery gallery defense i've i've stood by them and there's definitely i feel stressed by that a lot but at the same time it's it's worked for me so okay let's stay there for a second so stressed by that what what is the uh what's the what's the cause of that stress do you think do you mind going there sure no i mean it's it's the you know, as, as most artists know, there's that commission loss when the gallery sells stuff, they're, they're taking a cut. So you're, you're generating so much possible income, right? I can make so many of these paintings back here a year and the reality of getting less than that and being responsible for framing it myself. There's a kind of, uh, you know, feels sometimes like an ax blade that's right there, you know? And, and wow. I think when I see the, or, or the internet's expanded and I know you're a huge proponent of that and, knowing your history too, with, with having the galleries, you know, just disappear on you. It's, it's a very real thing for me too. Like it's a, something I'm aware of and, and I would say I'm suspicious of, you know, it's like, I love my galleries, but I'm always kind of like, well, at any minute they might just be gone, you know, and that, that part's the stressful part, but at the other time, you know, the other aspect of things I'm sitting here painting and doing what I want to do and checks just come in the mail. And that's so nice. Cause I hate, I hate business. I hate running things, you know, I mean, having to ship things and package things and all that is just a nightmare for me. And so it's so great to be able to just like drive to a gallery, drop off work and just get checks over the summertime. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's been so attractive for me as a painter to, and then seeing other artists that I look up to and emulate in, in their career arc, that there's a kind of trust, you know, that the galleries are out there schmoozing and, and being in front of the eyes that I would maybe have a harder time reaching in the in the internet way you know, a lot of my collectors are probably in their 70s or 80s even so whether or not they're following me on instagram is fairly unlikely you know but mm -hmm. there's there's just been i guess i've i've just i've built myself into that with the galleries and there's when you step away from galleries like right now if i was to say oh, i'm gonna go do everything on my own i know that i wouldn't be able to make what i make with the galleries maybe sometime i could it would add up but it would come at great expense to me and mm -hmm. so i try to rationalize that the expense i pay them is is somehow worth whatever it would cost me to handle all the shipping and emailing and schmoozing and rent and everything else you got to pay extra of that that i currently can just hang out here and paint and i love that you're selling it well i must say because <laughs> I, I i've had a uh a, a terrible attitude towards galleries in the past, I, I must admit. And and even recently, and I kind of go back and forth and back and forth and maybe people listening to the podcast, uh, because I, I've probably been doing the podcast over the last three years on and off. And people that, that are familiar and have listened to the episodes might just be going, Tish, just make up your mind on it already. But there is something to be said to, to delegating those tasks towards you know, to, to other people who can handle it 
you know, let's face it, better than you could. And if they that's their strength, then let them go ahead and have it. And this insulates you and protects that creative time. And if there's one thing that's actually really frustrating me at the moment, it's not getting enough time to create. And so it's been a challenge, you know, personally speaking, because I constantly find myself in a position where I'm stuck in my business and and doing business stuff. And it, it, it takes an enormous amount of time. Um, but, you know, the, the, the commission is the other side of things. But rather than looking at it as giving money away for nothing. I mean, I think you really highlight there the valuable service that they provide for that fee, you know, depending on the commission rate, of course. Now, I won't be rude and ask you how much you're paying a commission, but you've got um, you've got a couple of galleries that represent you. Is that right? Oh, yeah. I think I got uh, six, maybe. I got it there. I'm oh, in a- wow. I got that wrong. A okay. Si- a few galleries. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm in a situation where I, I have more galleries and interests than I can make paintings, which is the challenging piece. I feel kind of like I'm, I'm juggling things and, and always letting somebody down. You know, if I get five paintings to this gallery, then this gallery just sold two and they went four. And then these guys, you know, it's this, I feel like I'm putting fires out, you know, like just running around and that's not a complaint. Like I'm very, very, very fortunate to have that demand going for my work. And I'm, you know, it's, it's just a person for the personal journey of it. it it's kind of hard because I'm a people pleaser and, and that, that experience is a little, like you said, creatively, you get put into this, this little bit of a pressure cooker there where you're trying to make people happy and make art that you want. And I was one of my, you know, standards there is just like trying to keep the quality of the work high and that being, that being everything, you know, I could probably make more money if I could paint faster. I could probably make, more money if I painted something slightly different and added some narrative stuff that would help the painting sell, whatever, you know, those are things that I don't want to compromise on. And thankfully, yeah, I've got a lot of galleries and it's, I think something that if there's listeners that want to know more about that kind of gallery element, which I know you have a lot of people asking, you know, how do you get into them? I have never had to apply to a gallery. There wasn't some Fantastic. going through the process. Yeah. It's always been, word of mouth, maybe doing those things and saying that yes, man thing, showing up to paint outs, showing up to, uh, you know, shows with good work. I mean, I think if you make good paintings, that's, that's your number one concern as an artist, whether you sell it himself or you're going to trust other people with that process. Like you got to make sweet stuff. Don't, don't think a gallery is some magical, you know, magical thing that they're going to sell things for you just because they're a gallery. Like you have to make work and you have to believe in it. And if that's going, then, you know, I've had galleries and lost galleries and gained more galleries and I'm sure they'll close or change over time, but that's, it's okay to trust that process. If you, the work happening in the studio is, is solid, then the rest of that kind of happens. Um, and, and I've, you know, if I needed to do it on my own, if I wanted to, like, I think it's like you said, there's a business thing that you got to take seriously. If you're going to step away from the gallery stressing it, then it does become your job to become a new professional in a different way. And I just don't want to do it yet. <laughs> a lot of artists I know are doing so well selling on their own. And uh, it is tough to see the commission cost. I keep track of it. So I always sell when I have a spreadsheet. Whenever I sell paintings, I mark what that retail value was and whatever that commission is. So every year I see it. And it's 
it's sobering, you know, but at the same time, I know them as people, the galleries I work with are all friends of mine. So it feels a lot better, you know, knowing that it's, it's employing people and, and providing community service, you know, that's something that I love galleries. I love going to them. I think it's so fun that, that they're a part of our life and as humans, you know, it's such a cool thing. So that does take us artists also being a part of that process, but, but yeah, it's, it's, it's tough. I, yeah, I won't say there's one way or better yeah. than the other. That's for sure. Yeah. I mean, you are selling it, man. You are selling it because when you say that, yeah. And, and, and you're right. They're, they're people, they're people too. And they do provide a valuable service and, and shout, shout out to Colin and, and Gay from, um, from Perth, Western Australia, my first agents, because, you know, that's when that first really hit home for me that this is, these are people and they, they got your best interest at heart and they, uh, they're representing you uh, to the best of their ability and, and really putting you out there. And, you know, it's got to be worth, worth something for sure, for sure. But, um, you know, while this is all happening, like you're, you're, you've got your own website, you've got social media, you're doing all that side of stuff as well. So I don't want to get you in trouble here in case one of your galleries, uh, you know, is paying attention to this, but are, are you, are you thinking in terms of, uh, if, despite being happy with the gallery model, are you thinking in terms of building up this personal brand? Because there's one thing that has come about in, in the last decade, and that is, you know, this notion of the personal brand, because it's not just what you produce, it's you, you know, and, and Kenneth Yurse is, is an entity that you can now go and follow right now on social media. Like this is a paradigm shift. And, and that can be the foundation for a business as well. But is this something that you kind of toyed with or thinking about? Because, I mean, you're posting amazing stuff. And it's always just, hey, just, just sharing the latest thing from the studio. That's really cool. But I don't know. Is, is there something there in the future that you think could work? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think the diversification piece is something that uh, COVID, I think, was was a one of the big teachers of like, you know, again, like in the paradigm element you're talking about. And I'd say with the gallery or simplified even more, just the retail concept, you know, that there's a store people have to go to, to buy something. I mean, that's being challenged worldwide, society-wide. It's, you know, whether or not people like to go shopping or want to go down to a gallery to do something, it's a new, brand new frontier. This is, and that that is a cool thing. And I'm a big techno nerd. I love computers and stuff. And so for me, there's definitely been an awareness of all of that. And the the reality, if you know, if you sell something on your own, you do make significant more money, which is great, but you're also able to then interact with people and your fans and stuff. So I I try to do, you know, have a healthy awareness of both of those things. Cause I think that again, without discrediting my galleries, I've, I've worked their butts off for years and have created me into this thing and they've got buyers that if I send them a work, they have got people they can email to do it. And again, I love not having to do that. So um, the, you know, the thing that I have started and been trying to do, which is hard is, is getting into the YouTube element and you're a major hero for that. I mean, it's when I think of, I almost get a kind of uh, uh, imposter syndrome, you know, it's like, man, there's already so many amazing content creators that like, what do I really have to bring to the table here? And that's, that's that's a scarcity concept that, that doesn't help me to think like that. So I try to like shoo that part of my brain that uh, wants to come up with that kind of negativity. But ultimately, I think that, you know, price point wise in, in a business idea 
right? This is advice I actually got from a, a art dealer that I've really loved. And, and it ties into say your brand making, you know, if you think it's guys like Mark Maggiore, even where there's, there's galleries he works with and there's, there's professional support that he can rely on, but there's also still this the reality that like you are this engine that's creating the art, you're creating some of that hype. It's not going to be solely up to a gallery anymore to do that stuff. And that's just the nature of the age we're in. So it's hard for artists that maybe want to be introverted and stay home and not do anything. Cause I don't know if you'll be able to get away with that in the next 20 years, you know, since we mm -hmm. all got to be our personal celebrity. Um, but I, you know, the main point that I wanted to stress about that was like, basically in the financial game, there's a ton of people that can afford something for a hundred dollars. Right. And there's mm -hmm. way fewer people that can buy something for a hundred thousand dollars. So there's this pyramid element and, and trying to build your base and your followers with affordable things that they can love and cherish, you know, and that's, that's a ties into kind of the pricing thing too. But like, I want to be able to offer a broad range of things that can support that base building and as your pyramid grows and that point gets taller and you're reaching maybe that fame that will happen sometime as an artist, it might be time. 60 or 70 you know but by then hopefully i've built this this big base that just supports that that really special fine painting that i can make in 20 years that's going to be amazing you know but it happens now and it happens with people buying cards or youtube video you know the workshops and stuff like that i mean they're all a part of that that building and so i think that as artists we have to be able to manage all of that and and think about how how we're growing our future because you can't control everything, but you definitely want to have fans out there. And if you go out and just want to hit those top 1% people and sell something for a hundred grand right off the bat, it's like, sorry, it might not happen. It does happen. You hear about people getting really crazy lucky with that stuff. But, but, you know, mm. I think that with, with the internet, you have that ability to reach that broader margin, you know, where you can sell something for 50 bucks or a hundred bucks to thousands of people. And now you made a hundred grand. So you don't want to underestimate the the reach of social media and the opportunity to to bring in fans into your your fold, you know, and they might not be the ones that buy a $10,000 painting, you know, but they might buy something from you and that's pretty dang cool. So it's tough. I sell most of my big expensive things through galleries, but I want to use the internet to reach a different kind of audience and sell a different type of product. And, you know, I, to be honest, I hate social media. I hate Instagram. Wow. I hate trying. <laughs> <Tell it. laughs> I hate, I hate the, the, the runaround and, you know, it's all an AI thing. It's, it's, you know, with TikTok and everything becoming these reels and, and that's maybe what's drawn me more to say YouTube, where I can do long format videos. I can do a 10 minute long video where I can talk about my process and actually share and connect with people. And I'm not just this scroll bait you know, spam stuff that's turning us all into goldfish. Like I, I really don't like so much of that. So I'm trying to use the platform as I can, but the reality is I want to be a part of a different, different thing. And so I'm hoping that YouTube can be that whenever I can designate more time to it. Cause I freaking tapped out right now, but uh, yeah, social media is, is tricky. I really don't like what it does for mm -hmm. my mental health. And, and there's a, documentary called the social dilemma that i think people should check out because it it does mm. kind of highlight the you know and you even mentioned it like you know the rabbit holes you can kind of get sucked into and absolutely and, yeah and yeah. it's 
I think actually kind of a dangerous thing for society and um, art obviously being the really cool part about it. I mean, sharing art and I think of mm -hmm. the old school Instagram where it was just photos and art and, and that was it, you know, and, but it's mm. turned into this other monster. And so I, I don't like supporting it, but it is, it is where people are now. So it's tricky. So it was a big tirade. No, no, I, I not at all. I love it. And, and that's, that's what the, uh, that's what the podcast is, is all about. It's uh it's a series of dirt roads in the middle of nowhere. And, and we're just going to take a hard left or a hard right into, into, into things. And, and I, that's what I love is exploring these topics because it brings so much color to, um to who you are. I mean, I, look, to be honest, you know, I build up this, this mental image of what Kenneth Yaris is, is all about. And, and then when I meet you, I'm like, Wow, there, there's just such depth here, and it's just such a cool. It's it's such a pleasure to meet you finally, you know, and have this this chance to really talk with you. But you know, you you mentioned something there, and I chuckled to myself because uh, the irony is, I'm going to take that little bit where you're hating on social media, I'm going to turn that into an Instagram reel and post it. <laughs> so, <laughs> So literally, you're going to be talking about hating people, you know, scrolling on their phone, and then oh, there's Kenneth Harris. What do you say? Hey, bring that back, you know. Oh man, but, it's it's it yeah. feels like a necessary evil, or or you know, whatever. You're just you can't escape it. Well, I I think it's by design. I I really think it's by design, and and there are you know we, we're fed this this pack of garbage where all of these platforms or companies are started by some genius in their garage, and it's just not true. Um, you know, if people want to dig into the, uh, to the backstory of some people, um, the names are fake, the places are fake. I mean, call me a conspiracy theorist. I don't care, but what we need to do is actually really look at this stuff and, and, and realize that a lot of this stuff is by design. And then my question is why? And at the end of the day, I think this is a spiritual thing, you know, just my personal take on it. And it's trying to remove us from what's important. I mean, it's a bit like your art. For instance, you know, we could celebrate your art, which really for me hits that button and touches the divine. It's a, it's a reminder of what's really important. And you could look at that and, and you know, we could, we could think about what you charge versus the, the person who duct taped the banana to the wall, you know? And, and, and th this, is, this is a thing that's going on. And I think ultimately, whether we're talking about technology and social media and these platforms, I think at the end of the day, they're robbing us of who we really are on a deep level and, and your art again, brother, your art just really, it, it reminds us that there's, there's more important things. There are things that are vastly important. And so whether you're working with a gallery or, 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 you know, selling it direct or whatever, I'm just glad you're out there doing it because it's, it's, I think it gives us permission this is the other thing as well, you know, you mentioned so much there, but the other thing as well is that you're, you're an authentic guy and, and it's kind of cold to hear that you went through that pain point early on going, hang on a second, I don't want to do this anymore. I want to, I want to, I'm about the landscapes. I want to do the landscape stuff. So, um, that's super inspiring too. But while we're on the subject, I mean, you mentioned you're a bit of a techno guy, you know, so it's interesting. You hate on social media, but at the same time you like technology. What are your thoughts on AI? Uh, yeah, AI is a big, big deal right now. Mm. I, um, I, I love elements of it. Um, you know, I was actually just talking with my buddy, Nate Clausen when we were driving out to that art show and, and we were talking about AI. And one of the things that we 
you know, I think the structure, like even so for a fine artist like me, I don't feel particularly bothered by it. You know, the, whether or not somebody wants to buy something that's printed out that AI made is it's up to them. You know, I, I don't see that being super valuable long-term, but I've, I'm out of touch with most people and how things work in the you know modern world. And I'm okay with that. Uh, but when I talk about the thumbnails that I have to do, or I'm working on these design things, like I definitely could see the tool element saying, okay, AI, I've got these five different reference photos that I took of this area. Hit me with some stuff. Let me see what, what you got. Does this, does this create a spark to say, oh yeah, this tree was moved here. Cause I'm doing that all the time. I'm not at all a, you know, photo painter. I'm, I'm always rehashing stuff. And, and so I could see the AI being a useful tool in that instead of me wasting two hours sitting there doodling it all, just saying generate and have it be done in eight seconds or, you know, one second, you know, being given that kind of creative fodder and something that I would do, but maybe not to that level. You know, and I think of the stuff that like uh, Dibble does. I, don't, I can't even remember his first name. Is it Dave? David Dibble. Um, just right. mad scientist style rehashing of compositions. And like, right. yeah. it's so so fantastic and obviously your own artistic vision comes through through that process but i could see ai being a useful tool in that way but realistically paintings made with the human hand and the the human expression will still always be valuable to people somewhere and in my other nerd side because i used to love i still love video games and i always wanted to be a video game designer and worker and and one of the big holdups for me to be able to make my own game is assets. You know, if I want to make a tree, that's a huge amount of labor to render it and skin it and do all the UV mapping and everything else required to make this asset. Then now you can just say, hey, AI machine, make me five trees and boom, you got five trees for your game. So I can see like cool things happening from it. Um, but, you know, that's tough because some guy that designs trees for computer games is probably sweating right now. You know, yeah, he's freaking out right now, dude. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and I, you know, I think that's a broader, deeper discussion in, into like mm. kind of what, what matters. And, and that's a hard thing for our society right now. I think there's some, in that paradigm shift that you're talking about, there's, there's an element of like, you know, we have a downtown in our, like most towns have a downtown, right? But half of it's empty. It's just, it is. Like it or not, I, mean, I shop at Amazon. Most humans just shop at Amazon here in America and it's mm -hmm. killing the downtown, but none of us are behaving differently. And you're going to have to have that crisis kind of of like what matters then? What, you know, what is downtown if it wasn't just a shopping area? You think about all the way back to medieval times. It's like that's where people bought and sold stuff. Happens to be on the internet now. So we have these internet downtowns, but what's mm -hmm. this new value going to be in our real town? What really matters to us when it's, not just crap anymore, just stuff, 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 you know, like hopefully they get turned into places for community and hopefully there's more room as computers take over these jobs that humans can hopefully enjoy other things in life and they don't have to just work all the time. That's the like utopian me thinking that hopefully that, you know, AI and some of these speeding processes up allow more freedom for humans and more people can become artists and maybe it'll be more galleries down there. I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I hear people talking about, you know, uh, uh, some sort of universal basic income as a way for, you know, your basic needs to be met. 
as a result of this process that is kind of shifting everything towards automation and and these these computerized systems you know whether it's driven by ai or some sort of mechanized process you know a big industry that i think is going to be quite yeah uh, displaced let's put it that way is going to be the transport sector you know whether you're a a cab driver driver or an uber driver or or a truck driver you know as things kind of move towards this automation those people are going to be out out of a job and, and you're looking at potentially millions of people and and that is a huge concern and that's something that some people might go well okay well that's going to cut costs and efficiency and maybe there might be some sort of environmental payoff there or whatever but i i think ultimately the human cost that's that's almost immeasurable somebody that's put their life into that and that's part of their identity that's um that's an incredibly painful thing to have to go through. Um, Life-changing, earth-shattering for somebody in that position. And so, so I, I'm concerned about that. But you said something very interesting about, um, you know, something made by the human hand. So you're not particularly concerned about AI from that standpoint, which is kind of a refreshing thought as well, because there are artists right now that are freaking out. Like some artists are really excited about it because suddenly they see this as an opportunity and they're using it as in, in their process. I am not one of those people. Um, I, I've had a few people comment on some of my digital art videos going, hey, AI's got you whipped. And that might be, but it, it's, it's fascinating to see the different sides to this. And I don't know if there's a right or a wrong here just yet. I think this is still, it's so new that we're starting to really, it's interesting watching people find their feet. Let, let's put it that way. But personally, my, my concern with it is, is that anytime you have a paradigm shift that shakes the bedrock of the economy, there are flow-on effects that you don't quite anticipate. And I've explained this in the podcast before, and the people that follow me at my online academy, um, link in the show notes, by the way, um, they'll hear from the talks that I give on art business that, you know, in the past when I lost my business, and hopefully people can learn from that so they don't have to go through the same thing, when, when that happened, it was an unintended consequence. There was a downturn in the resource sector where China stopped buying iron ore. So where I was kind of getting established as a professional artist, that was the backbone of the Western Australian economy was iron ore exports. And so when China stops, stops importing that and ma manufacturing steel, they just say, no, no, no more. We're, we're good for now. Suddenly you have the mining companies just laying off wholesale, just executives and people working there. And these are people that make money and they buy stuff. And one of those things that they buy is like a nice painting to hang on the wall. And now suddenly my waiting list goes from like a, a few dozen people to cut in half to gone. <laughs> and it reminds me of that South Park episode where the guy's gone and it's gone, you know, and it, that was very much what it was. And I didn't see that coming. Man, that was like getting slapped upside the head with a cold fish. It was just a rude awakening. I'm like, what is going on? So I, I think we might be facing another one of those. And, and I'm not sure what form it's going to come in yet, but I think the displacement of people will have a flow on effect for us artists. You know, y yes, there's the creative concerns, of, of course, always, but, but still there's got to be demand for what you do. You know, and I, I, I believe that very much because you, you can't, you can't 
outsource that. You can't delegate that. It has to be created by Kenneth Yaris with his brush. Yeah, that, that's that's maybe and to tie it into your the, you know the kind of modern branding of things like AI art's just not that interesting. I mean, the the story of it isn't interesting. There's there's a couple of nerd friends I have that are you know they'll they'll get crazy about it, but people as a whole, you know, humans. If there's something that's true through all of this crazy craziness of life and the human experience is that we are communal animals. We we connect and share together. And computers, I don't think. I mean, there's, there's, I guess I should, I won't say anything because who freaking knows what's going to happen, but I know that that's, that's one of our deeper drives. And so for people to buy one of my paintings, it's not just because of one of my paintings. It's because of every, every painting up to that point of, of what I stand for as an artist in person to what they stand for as a person and collector. I mean, there's so much that AI can't touch there that I'm not tremendously worried by it. Um, and on those other fronts, economically, that is that is a whole whole can of worms, absolutely. And I I'm curious to watch the next fifty years if I get them, you know, to watch watch what happens as if, if any of us grapples. get them. <laughs> yeah, it's you know the and I think of that with it's even you know a couple hundred years ago, most of us were farmers. Most humans had to be. And I've like I've actually worked in an organic farm and do a bit we do a pretty serious family garden here. And it's one of the things that I think people take for granted is just food, you know, but like how much work it is and uh, what yeah. a pain in the ass that is that we're I'm very lucky to get to paint all day because my hands are nice and clean and and my back doesn't hurt and I'm not out in the rain. And, you know, like the farmers and, and where food comes from is, is messy, hard work. And if it wasn't for farm machinery, you know, you think of what a combine harvester took over for, you know, thousands of people's job uh, jobs were taken, but but they freed them up in other ways in the economy. So it it's something that I try to use to dispel some of that that freak out sensation. Um, that hopefully with human creativity and connection, you know, there's just more jobs to be made as more of these other jobs are taken away. That we still keep making more humans. And somehow there's there's things for us all to do somehow, including jobs that we're only, I mean, God, I think of the people that get to play video games on the internet now, like Twitch and all that. Like, if you told me, high school me, that I could have just kept playing Counter-Strike and made more money than an NFL player, like, I mean, that's freaking amazing that that's all new stuff. You know, those are new jobs and new monies and humans have an insatiable need for entertainment mm. at like you said, there's a spiritual cost to that, I think, too. But yeah, there's some weird times, weird times behind, weird times ahead. It's all pretty crazy. I'm still going to stick to something that I've said, though. And and I, I I still believe this firmly. And and maybe in a way, I have to believe it. But I, I don't think there's ever been a better time to be an artist. And I'll say that, and in, in maybe this opens up another tangent, but I, which I welcome. Um, but you know, it's it's funny how we were talking about Beerstop before, and and just what a badass that guy was, and and even you mentioned Thomas Moran, another one of my favorites, um, and and I think we have the tendency to put these guys on a pedestal, but I, I imagine what it would have been like to be in that day and age, because there's probably hundreds more artists that we never heard of that were just trying to get the break at that time as well 
but I, I don't know what it is. Maybe we, we just kind of assume that there, there was something in the water back then and we deify these people. We put them on this, this pedestal and it's unattainable what they were able to, to achieve. We can't do that today, but I would go as far to say that there are some artists that are alive today working that are, you know, equal in, in, in terms of their skill and how they deposit the paint. I, I'm just continually blown away, but it's the opportunities that we have now. You know, galleries are still here, but we have this whole new world that's opened up. I mean, for goodness sake, you're over there in the United States. Here I am in the South Island of New Zealand. We're having a conversation in real time on the internet on video, HD video, and and uh, whereas before, if I wanted to talk to Kenneth Yaris and it's 1850, good luck. I'm going to send you a letter, and six weeks later, maybe it gets to you. If, if it's six or six months, you know, six months. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah man, yeah. it's crazy. <laughs> it's insane. It's crazy, and I and I think that I would I would stand by that too. You know, that the now is is incredible. You know, and I, the from what I have learned from just biographies and the the stuff I've just gained learning about these older artists and, and, you know, back to the, you know, the stuff I saw in Europe, you know, that like you had to have a King vouch for you or a church. I mean, the, the per capita rate of being an artist was just minuscule, you know? I mean, I think that's where you see craft and art being so separated was that you could be an artist and that you carved stuff and did work, you know, and, and could be an artistic person back in the medieval times but if you were an actual artist of name of which we probably have what a couple thousand worldwide you know i mean now there's millions of us artists out there and it's that's what's so cool about the modern day is that the paradigm that existed as much as we might hate galleries or might hate the internet it's way better than having to you know wait for some king to decide for me you know that i can be an artist you know we all we have our destiny much more in our hands now and that's that's pretty freaking cool Hmm. Yeah, it, it, it is. And, and I, I think that it's important to just stop for a second and, and check in with these things. I, I, I think, you know, there's a lot to be said for just being grateful, right? Yeah. 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 That's unfortunate. I think, I mean, it's not unfortunate. I think uh, it's, it's in that spiritual realm, there's, there's so much that just thankfulness covers that, you know, we all, at least in America, you know, we're just driven so, so hard for more and to consume and to have. And thankfulness just destroys that. I mean, it just stops it in its place where you can be like, oh, I'm thankful for what I have. And that's it's so powerful and so deep. And, you know, I think that that it's not stressed enough, at least in America. You know, it's kind of counterculture to be thankful in a way, but it's it's really where freedom is. Freedom. I'm, I'm a big freedom guy. I'm all about it. <laughs> yeah, I you love uh, something I'm into a lot lately is Stoic philosophy. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, excellent. Tell me about that. I just finished a book by Ryan Holiday, which is uh, Discipline is Destiny, I think it, the title was. But uh, have you have you gotten into that one? Not into that one. I'm going to write it down here because okay. I think you read many more books than I than I get into. Well, just 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 on that though, uh, Kenneth, because I so I I'm I'm not a reader, okay? I, I I don't read. I I I hate reading. I just don't like it. I don't see the sense in sitting down, and and doing that because I'm so busy with the business, and then I want to draw something, I want to paint something, but I I'm a listener, so 
I think, you know, we, we have this thing now, and I guess people call that reading books. I don't know if it counts, but I, I've got quite an audible budget that I'm building up every month. And heck yeah, man. Yeah. I will stand by that as reading. I, okay. It's so annoying. Good, good. People are like, you didn't read that book. It's like, oh my God, whatever. Like, I didn't sit there and turn the pages, you know, but I'm with the audible all the way. And yeah. it's, there's some books that I, I think are, you know, kind of heady or something. You know, I got to almost take notes from them, and mm-hmm. Audible hasn't suited me well for some of those those reads. But I, I am a big time Audible guy. I'm with you. If you well, can paint, I, I couple and that. Learn, I couple it with the the app called Short Form. Um. So so when it, when you're when you're listening to an audio book and then you want to find that title, uh, not sponsored by the way. Uh, if you're listening to this, but just just a fan. Um, so some of the books though that I've listened to haven't come up on short form. Um, so I listened to this David Goggins book, which is just mind blowing, uh, called Never Finished, and I tried to find the notes of that one if I'm remembering correctly, and I couldn't find notes in short form. Mind you, it probably didn't lend itself to notes per se, but short form will give you a a, a, a summary and a, and a synopsis and then expansion in particular areas, and I found that to be quite quite beneficial um but but stoicism tell me about that because i've look you'll you'll know a bit more about that than me i've only just begun to to dabble my toes uh in there um after having a a bit of a chat to um john fenerov uh who's who's a big big fan of stoicism but um i I would would love to 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 hear your thoughts on that because it's it's super fascinating Oh yeah. I think, I mean, and I would, I am so far from being, you know, intellectually up to par on, on my stoicism and, and my, my reading of it. You know, I've gotten most of the way through Marcus Aurelius's uh, meditations, which is one of the kind of pillars of stoic mm-hmm. philosophy and that he, he was just one of the more well-documented writers of it. But, but stoicism is tied back to, you know, way, way back in, into Western, Western civilization. And, tying some of you know these old old paintings old art the the ideas and principles kind of driving them it is so hard not to touch on stoicism and and the kind of you know the way you think about reality and what matters you know because beauty and nature are things you hear repeatedly in these the kind of quotes and thoughts and and good and and evil and what's right and wrong i mean all those things the, the philosophical entertainment of those ideas has always been interesting to me even when I was like a little kid, I remember like getting books on Aristotle, like when I was like in high school and not understanding anything. And I still don't understand it in a fully philosophical kind of way. Like, you know, whether what ideas he's, you know, proposing and what reason and logic they're, they're made up, you know, all that stuff is is too heady for me. Uh, But it's, it's the overall gist of them is so appealing to me. I didn't grow up with a religion. My family didn't, teach us any particular spirituality so i think i turned to it as a way of of trying to understand the spiritual realm you know and having those notions like you said there's there's times where you can't help it as a human but you feel drawn to something you know and and whether that's that truth or goodness or when you see something that's evil and bad and you can't really describe why or how it's that way but you know it you know that there's some some deep stuff there and stoic thought is so so ingrained in our society in the western end of things that like you just kind of take some of them assumptions for granted and then they become almost colloquial you know memento mori is one of the ideas there that like it's basically just remember that you're gonna die <laughs> it's, it's wow, kind of morbid yeah. 
yeah. you know, but Memento Mori is, is uh, one of those, when you think about that and you think that way, it changes your present. It changes how you are in the moment and that's powerful. And so I think that stoic thought has always just tied me back to the kind of the roots of right now, it becomes almost a spiritual practice in how you overcome suffering and how you work for what matters and, and avoid kind of what the world and the noise says. It kind of gives you this, this shelter from the chaos of things. And I've loved that about stoic thought, you know, and it, it's close to, there's a lot of, you know, Buddhism has some similar principles. I mean, in Christian thought, jumps right into stoic thought you know stoics started a little earlier than than some of the christian principles but they all just meshed into western civilization as we know it so i think it's so cool for people to to read that stuff and and see that there's some of these sayings are like oh that hasn't changed you know even though we have cell phones and all this crazy stuff that they would have never believed humans are still the same you know what we suffer from is still the same and the antidote is also right there and it's normally right here between our between our ears if you can take stewardship of it which is a lot of what stoic you know a lot of stoicism happens there it's interesting because i i think so many of us artists are run by emotions and that was a big takeaway for me again just just dabbling my toe in there going oh this seems like a bit of a uh, a bit of a framework for first getting yourself under control, you know, realizing the nature of who and what you are and, and controlling that raw emotional energy and really taking hard, a good hard look at yourself and taking personal responsibility. You know, as a Christian, you know, people have, have, and I've had debates with people and conversations with people about it. And, and it's, it's a kind of a relatively new thing for me. I've only been a Christian for the last four years, but when I try to describe it to somebody who isn't, I, I just kind of say, well, I, I, you know, yes, Lord and Savior and, and all of that, and I love Jesus, but ultimately it is a, is it a, it's a code of, of ruthless personal responsibility. And I, I find myself, I have to continually check back into that. You know, I have to continually um, take stock of that. Where am I at? Am I, am I living true to my word? Because that's one thing that, that we've got to be is, is, is kind of is honest, you know, and, and honest with ourselves. Um, because you're, you're not going to lie to God, are you? <laughs> and get away with it. Um, but, oh man, th- this, this went, th- this went down one of those dirt roads real fast. I love it. Um, but there, there's something here. Let's bring it back to the art because there's there's something about this where, you know, if you're taking personal responsibility and you're going for this thing that is so important to you and the driving force behind your career, it's going to take discipline. So would you would you describe yourself? Because the evidence bears out. You, you do appear from the outside to be a very disciplined person person. I mean, because the evidence is sitting right there. I'm looking at it in your studio. That takes hard work that you're not going to get around the amount of time that that's going to take to develop those techniques. So, so run me through that. Like, how would you describe yourself? Would you say that's accurate? Are you disciplined? Ooh, I, so in that, that kind of radical self-judgment that can happen, you know, I, I would say I'm, barely disciplined at all, you know, to the capacity I know I could be, you know, am I more disciplined than other people or am I more disciplined than I would be? You know, it's, it's, I think the mentorship and the, the element of, of what happened 
in that hero's journey, if, if the, the teachers that held, held my nose to the grindstone, literally that, that, that was needed, you know, as a young person that could go a thousand different ways. It's so great to have teachers say, hold on a minute, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, but I would say that I like discipline, you know, that's, that's going back to those, that, that stoic mentality that like, you know, and it can be a little brutal. We're thinking like you're going to die and your know, life is only pain and that kind of stuff. Like it's, that's not really like the big takeaway if you're going to go with those spiritual realms, but like there is freedom in it. And there's, there's, there's fruit in that structure that's undeniable, you know, like I said, like back to Aristotle, you know, we are what we repeatedly do. Excellence therefore is not an act, but a habit and making yourself friendly with that idea that like, you know, even this painting back here is still a step in a journey. This isn't my be all end all painting. It's not the thing I've been working to all this time. That thing is the work itself. And, and I'm not going anywhere. You know, there's no final destination for us as artists. There's just the endless creative journey. And, and that's so wonderful. If you can learn to accept the journey and not think that this next painting is some, some breakthrough thing, you know, and similar with, with like just, you know, how the philosophical piece affects life is like, you know, the, it won't be when I buy a house that I'm magically going to be happy. It just won't. And it makes it hard for me to do stuff sometimes because it's like, what do you do if it's just the journey? It's like, you just got to be in the moment and be free and be happy. And you know, that that's for me to have, if I want to grab it right now. And that's, that's spiritual and that's hard, hard to be there all the time, you know? So when it's not there, work, work on art and work on all kinds of stuff. You know, I would say I'm disciplined in that. I, like I said, I like health and fitness. You know, I like going to the gym. I like having those kind of routines. I like, you know, I mean, even in my passive, like, I love video games where it's like, I will play those with a disciplined nature that I'll play that game until I've leveled up everything and whatever. That's not traditional discipline and that I'm getting anywhere with real life, but you know, it's, it's, I will focus on things and mm. I seem to be kind of, and I, th I think you might know, just like creatively, there's like that kind of, you know, I think you have to wrestle that with your different businesses and being like, okay, if it's going to be YouTube, like I imagine that Andrew gets sucked into that with everything, you know, and I'll, oh, I'll man. get pulled in those rabbit holes, you know, I, I have to be so careful, Kenneth, man. I, I, I tell you what, I have to be so careful. Like I tried the video game thing for, for, for a little while. Like, I, I think the last console that I bought was back in 2016 and I tried it because I, I kind of wanted to see what it was all about. And cause I didn't grow up with video games or I didn't even grow up with TV. And, and so I, I went in and then I got hooked and I have such an addictive personality that I was like, you know what? I, I, I'm going to have to give this thing away and just go cold Turkey. And I, I never touched a console again. I don't even think I've had a chance on a, on a, on anything. So, so I was going, I bought an Xbox, but the last console I had played before that was like a, uh, not a super Nintendo, a Nintendo 64 Goldeneye. Oh that, yeah. That was okay. All right. So yeah, I'm showing my age here. <laughs> no, but, I love the 64. I still play mine sometimes. It's pretty hilarious. It, but it's the, um, I, I have to be careful. So I have to choose personally. I've got to choose what, what's the thing I'm going to get into. I tell you the big thing for me now that I'm kind of getting obsessed with besides the whole working out and exercise thing. Cause I'm, I'm back on that kick, but the, um, uh, spear fishing is, has, has really, you know, taken, taken my imagination. And I'm just thinking about the next spot that I'm going to go and do a dive. 
and this is coming from a guy that that doesn't get in the water. Like I, I'm phobic still about the water, and and sharks and seals and 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 things that that uh, and and th- mainly the things that that prey on the seals because I'm still convinced, despite what the seasoned spear fishermen tell me, I still think you look an awful lot like a seal in murky water, and and it's uh, <laughs> so there is that. So if you don't hear from me for a while, folks, uh, just check with the uh, the hospital. Um, but I it, it's. that's something because I got to have those things outside of art, right? I've got to have something to just hit that reset button. But I I was terrible at it for years. I I never had that outlet outside of of art. And I thought, no, maybe I need to pick something up here. But um, it's interesting that that it's, you know, video games for you. Um, It's it's great to hear it. Maybe I'm assuming, but it's it's great to hear that you can control it because I couldn't. I I was just I was in. I'm like I got I got to unhook because I I got to get me that halo. I got to get back into it. You know, (laughs) they're made to hook you, and and it's it's by design. You know, and I do not control it well. I mean, that's what I'm saying. The discipline piece is always challenged by those kind of things. That you know, if if I won a lottery tomorrow and could choose to paint or not i think i would come back around to painting but who knows how long it would take me mm. you know the, the the hunger drive is is still you know the thing it keeps me in the easel but i think being said being i like grinding I, you know i like to feel like there's that uh quality of of work and reward you know and i struggle more with like you know the kind of the manifestation mindsets where like you just kind of magic things happen. Like, I'm like, no, man, it, it happens through hard work and determination and grit. And both are probably true to some capacity, you know, and that's, I just have to get over that. Uh, but I also, you know, just tying these like personal things, like if you, if you, you know, don't have other stuff, then I think art, I don't know. I think like art and I see all that. I always feel like an imposter kind of when I was in school. It's like, I, I like painting and drawing, but I don't like it the most. I like all kinds of stuff. And, yeah. and it's so fun to live life with that than being just like super obsessed with one thing. But at the mm-hmm. same time, it's hard. Cause I feel like I identify in so many ways, like almost like a split personality where I like, yeah, I'm a big nerd, but I also love hiking and backpacking and mountain biking and adventuring. And, you know, like there's, seasons where i live in montana and in america's we have I mean, literal seasons where it's just snowy and garbagey here for five six months and having indoor hobbies is very convenient um but all summer i'm out paddle boarding and biking and hiking and backpacking as much as i can and it inspires my art so there's yeah there's a lot to me i guess <laughs> that's i mean there's there's gotta be man i mean i i look i i um it would be such a crime to have you on the podcast where we didn't actually talk about painting. And I, um, <laughs> I love hearing about what makes you tick and all the stuff going on behind the scenes and even how you started as well. And, and some of these influences. And it's also, uh, it's fascinating because we're, we're occupying very similar spaces and it's, it's interesting to get your take on, on the, the way the world is now and, and how that paradigm is shifting again. I think we're right in the middle of another one. And, and again, we're just going to see how this shakes out, but all that stuff to one side, I've had a blast talking to you about it. The painting itself. Now you, you, you're doing your hiking, you're out in nature. 
what, and I know you're, you're an amazing plein air artist as well. And so I imagine that's got to be a huge part of the artistic process. Walk me through this. How does this masterpiece that you're sitting in front of right now, the one that's just over, I guess, unless Zoom has mirrored this, it's over your left shoulder there. So tell me, tell me about this painting and, and how would a piece like that from the ground up, from, from the beginning, from, the, from walking up to the edge of this creek before it opens out to that lake, where is that, by the way? This is actually the Sawtooth Range down in uh, southern Idaho. So this wow. is far away from my normal stomping grounds, but I'm a mountain lover through and through. I don't care where the mountains are. I live next to Glacier Park, so I paint that a lot. But this is this is a, kind of my headlining piece for my solo show in July, and it's in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. So I thought, hey, this might be a great time to paint this scene that, yeah, standing there at the foot of that lake was, you know, and, you know, most artists know there's that kind of like, I'm going to paint this. <laughs> like that's, it's not about, you know, matter when it happens, but I knew I was going to paint it. It was perfect. It's, you know, it was so hard not to just not, you know, sit there and do sketches. Then obviously I took hundreds of photos, you know, that's my, my going practice. And in that nuts and bolts kind of discussion, plain air is, has been kind of a challenge thing. I mean, it's like plain air painting is, has been a challenge in the, like on the deeper element of like why we do it, you know, and as an artist, I think, you know, my draw to plain air is in the process and the experience of being there, understanding nature better, getting out into the inspiration and, and capturing it, being there for two hours at a time. Like there's so much fruit to be had plain air painting, but then, you know, a place I found myself caught in a couple of years ago was like, okay, cool. You can make a little eight by 10. That's great. You know, one, you can only sell that for so much money, but then also it doesn't do enough sometimes like this scene as an eight by 10 doesn't freaking cut it, you know, like, and I look at Beard Stat and Moran and these guys that are like, no, no, we're going huge. And realizing that like that has to be a part of my artistic statement. You know, there's, there's, I can't just be a plein air artist as much as I love going out and plein air painting. It really only feels like the research and development phase of something like this is really where it happens. And mm. when I'm doing this, I'm not thinking about plein air at all. Mm. You know, I'm not like, I don't even reference plein air studies anymore. Like it used to be a thing. I used to kind of have to convince myself that plein air was for something. And mm. I had to start just shifting away from that because it, felt like a weird box that didn't fit like you know I would make these plein air paintings and they just they weren't my art they were my attempt at capturing things and they were fun and and I love doing them and people like buying them there's people like the plein air style small unframed things are affordable you know again think about that base building I mentioned earlier it's like there's a cool place and space for plein air painting but when it comes to these big epic paintings like I have to switch gears and get out of that like copying nature mindset or you know big brush strokes mindset like I'm going for a different goal and that's okay but it took me a while to get to that comfort level as an artist I used to just always feel like you know the all a prima method was everything and now I don't work all a prima hardly ever I freaking hate all a prima now it feels like I'm rushing and struggling to fit everything in and it seems unfinished and choppy but that's just my own personal aesthetic and workflow you know like props to the painters that can do that you know I, they're they blow my mind 
it's just not how I can do things. That's too hard. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. So, so this piece behind you, is that a 36 by 54? It looks like almost. It's yeah, it's a three foot by four foot. So yeah, 36 by 48. 48. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Brilliant. And yeah, fantastic it's, it's considered size. Yeah. a big piece, you know, I mean, I, I only make a couple of those a year most of the time. Mm -hmm. And like I said, it's, it's tough because I want those compositions to have a certain something, you know, they have to have enough to carry the scene. And there's artists that make bigger paintings with just like a horizon, you know, like the guy I shared a studio with Richie Carter, I'll do these amazing paintings that have almost nothing in them sometimes, but they're so beautiful. And that's, you know, that's his aesthetic. He sees that stuff and, and responds that way. But for me, these big pieces, if it's just the tie into the old masterworks, but I want there to be enough to enjoy, you know, for someone to see a painting from a distance, but then get close and have things to enjoy about the scene. And some of that then, you know, becomes what you render and, and how much story you're telling is as you get close to things. But, you know, that's, that's the nuts and bolts of it are, are definitely like I do photography gathering is like the kind of pillar of it where I'm out getting the material. I really can't just work from other people's photos. I found that to be really, you know, kind of stale or something for me. Like, even though there's really amazing photos out there, it wasn't my experience. So there's something I can't draw from when I see just a cool photo. And, you know, there's like stupid things. Like in this picture, I have all kinds of detailed shots taken of these rocks and stuff that they don't mean anything as a photographer, you know, like the photo is not remarkable, but what it helps me out as an artist is, is so helpful. So anyway, getting that material and sourcing it and then taking notes of it in my head is, is one of the big things where I just got to have the experience. And it's a hard thing to rationalize like my girlfriend or my family who all see me out having fun all summer. And it's like, I really, I'm working guys. Like, it's hard to say that this, I'm having a fantastic time, but if I don't do this and I don't make the paintings, then I don't make any money, which is so awesome, you know, for me. <laughs> yeah. So, so I got to be out on my paddle board in the middle of the lake. It's, it's work guys. <laughs> we had done 40 miles of backpacking and this was our last day at this lake. And, oh, wow. yeah. you know, it was uh, like, you know, it's weird, but like, that's the kind of experiential piece that I draw from and maybe mm. to touch on the, the, the tie in the spiritual stuff and the, the, the you know philosophical stuff that goes on with this like i think being in nature and the physical journey right of hiking and climbing hills and mountains but then again i'm away from my screen and the society and you're back into this like raw human form in a raw animal world that you are you got to be turned up and the sawtooths actually don't have grizzly bears but where i normally am have huge scary freaking bears so you're you're just on this heightened awareness that i think makes everything more beautiful it just changes everything. And if I don't have that coming into this artistic process, like, I don't know if I could fake it. You know, I don't know. I don't know. That's, I haven't tried it, I guess. Maybe someday when I'm old, and that's the thing I think about now is I get out here and get these materials and get the inspiration because someday it will be a lot harder for me. So for me to do a 50 mile backpacking trip now, it's like, heck yeah, now's the time. And yeah, so that's that is the foundation. When I think about these paintings, it's like those experiences, those moments where nature just just does what it does. It's just there. Awesome. Just yeah, yeah you know, it's just awesome. But then yeah, it's all the other nuts and bolts, drawing and sketching, and 
So, so how long would you spend in drawing for, for a piece like that, a typical 36 by 48? Because I, I, just personally speaking, when I'm doing anything at that kind of scale, I feel like there's so much writing on this process. I'm going to be here for weeks, if not months. I got to get this composition right. So I, I might even spend a couple of weeks on, on the composition alone in the sketchbook, maybe something digital, but definitely a color study. So, so, so what would that process look like here for, for this piece? Yeah. Oh, and, and on that note, a, a thing I kind of hang, hang my hat on and I think I believe in, and it's a kind of stupid saying, but it's so true, but it, it's well begun is half done. So for me, oh, I love you that. know, especially coming out of school, you know, and the academies did not teach this, you know, that'll be something I would, I would fault and caution people as they're pursuing whatever education is like, Academies are all about like working from life and understanding light and form and very useful, very useful tools and stuff I'm grateful for in a, in a craft sense, but boy, they didn't teach anything about picture making, you know, they don't teach, they did a horrible job about teaching composition. It could be because I quit early because I was a bad boy. Um, but ultimately there was so little in that, like, you know, how do you compose? Like you could set a model up and they could all paint models on a stand perfectly well, but it's like, all right, now what, you know, do me a bougro. I don't have a lady flowing out of a tree. Can you do that? It's like, no, you can't rig a model up to do that. And that was a thing that I think they, they struggle from in a modern sense of like, okay, cool. You know, develop these things. And it does take time. And I'm glad they do that. But this other stuff, like you said, is it's like so much sketching and designing and like, kind of like, feels like improv poetry or something. You're just like throwing out ideas, trying to get something to stick. And my sketchbook habit, which was a long time thing since high school, just sketching and, and thumbnailing and, and gesture drawing, oddly enough, is something I did just thousands of hours of. And you wouldn't think that would apply to the landscape, but there's so much happening here. And when you think about the forms of mountains or trees that like gesture in that flow is so useful and I mean, the school in, the, in New York, they, they really didn't, they didn't, they, they felt gesture was kind of a waste of time. And I'm, I think that's a huge detriment to, to their folks because gesture is like, I think it's still everything for me. And mm -hmm. um, yeah, but sketching wise, I would say I know I've switched to everything being digital. I have an iPad now, mind blowing. Just the Procreate and the usefulness of its tools has just completely changed my process. Wow. And I mean, ultimately it's the process is still me sketching. You know, I, I tend to look at the photo and draw and not, I mean, I occasionally I'll drop the photo on and just skew things. That's if the photo is like really amazing. And I feel like it's got enough to make a painting as it is, but I tend to kind of cherry pick things. And it allows me to go from that like sketch phase where I'm just thinking, okay, you know, small composition or, you know, zoomed way out. And I'm thinking about those big shapes, big values, big angles, and just throwing down those sketches and ideas and placing things kind of as I see fit. And then zooming in and saying, oh, actually, okay, that rock, I'll grab that rock from over there. Oh, that rock, I'll change the shape. Oh, that tree, I'll get rid of it. You know, you start to have some fun with the process. And that took a long time to get to because I used to just kind of wait till I had a really great photo and had the self-confidence to say, okay, now I can go ahead and paint that. But this way is so much better. And I think I make way better art now than I used to. Excellent. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I, 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 I mean, I for one love the digital process. I I'm a big fan of Photoshop. So I'm drawing on the Wacom tablet all the dang time to, to design some of the bigger work. Um, 
but Procreate's uh, fantastic as well. You know, I, I haven't gotten into it as much, but I've got the iPad and the Apple Pencil sitting right there and I could just get straight back into it. But recently, the, the thing that kind of twigged for me was that when you're doing a physical drawing in the sketchbook, well, you have the drawing, you know, at, at least you've got the physical thing. And I, and I still am having trouble walking away from the physical thing. Um, I, I got an email from, from somebody recently, shout out to Richard. Richard's a, a big fan and has been following for a little while. He's like, I just, I want to, I want to buy a, a, a drawing from you every six months. I just, I just want something to just track your progress. Uh, and so I was, I was really touched by that. But if I was just doing the digital, I would, I'd kind of go, well, I'll print this out for you. <laughs> I, I, so, so I'm having trouble walking away with the sketchbook. I, I think having a good balance of both is great, but I hear you, man. Like, like on the, on the iPad front, that is such a handy thing to have. Um, and, and it's, it is faster, but there's, there's a lot more dimension that you can add to something and make bold decisions. I, I think that's the biggest thing for me is the bold decisions quick. And if you don't like it, then just X out of that and just revert back to the saved version or a few steps. But that, when you're doing something in real time analog, that's a lot more difficult that there's, there's time then. You know, and I, I find even still as free as I like to think I am, I'm still like, oh, I don't know, holding on to it pretty tight. Oh, man. Yeah, that's that. I just made a painting later earlier this month that I had, you know, these trees coming out on a you know really clear landscape. And, and that's always one of those, like you said, there's a lot of consequence. And and I tend to do, except I'm not an all prima painter. So I kind of paint the background in and just left these indicators of where the trunks were and where that tree will be. But when it came down to, all right, it's go time. I got to paint those those limbs and commit to that drawing. And, and you know, there's only so much turpentine would have done to get rid of some of that stuff. And you better believe I took a picture with my iPad and sketched out some ideas of where I wanted those lines to be and how I wanted that flow to happen. Because I just, as experienced as I am, I didn't have the kind of gumption to say, boom, here's the branch, you know, not until I got to experiment and play with it some. And the iPad is just like, you know, you're so right. Like I won't be able to sell things from this. And, and I don't, I kind of like that sometimes where I can just, this truly just feels like the, like the mechanics yard where you're just banging on stuff and, and figuring things out. And there's the end goal is that I make a functioning working thing, but the process is just messy and dirty, but I do still believe and and I love drawing. So like that, like the kind of sacred object concept, you know, that like this drawing I'm going to make is a drawing for its sake. And I like that, but kind of like the plein air thing, like the plein air is its its own sacred thing. The drawing is its own thing and they do inform each other, but creatively, if my goal is to make a big, big painting, I'm at a place with my deadlines and stuff that it's like, it's freaking go time. I got to get this stuff done and the fastest possible way to get through that R and D is needed for me right now. I wouldn't encourage it for people learning. You know, it's like, it feels like a professional tool that I rely on, but like, you got to draw with your hands and learn the medium and and just the tactile element of like drawing with charcoal or graphite is like, I've spent thousands of hours doing it and you know, I don't regret that. I love it mm -hmm. right now. When I'm trying to make paintings that got to sell, I got to do that as fast and as good as I can. And, and it feels like these digital tools are just tools. They're not really art, which is a bold thing for me to say, because I know some people really, love the digital art and it can become that for you, you know, but like, again, for me, I just, mine's back there. That's it's in the, the handmade enough, thing. Man. 
Yeah. And the digital piece, you know, people won't be going through my hard drive someday trying to make NFTs out of it. I mean, maybe they will. <laughs> maybe they know, will, but... bro. If NFTs are a thing, I mean, that I was talking to my buddy, uh, Samuel Earp, uh, about this, and I want to get him back on the podcast, but we had a bit of a challenge in the last series of the Creative Endeavor where we're like, okay, race to go and, and get your first NFT out there. And he beat me to it, like hands down. He just got out there and did it. And I, I was still working out what an NFT was, but it seems to be a bit of a, a, a flash now. They, they don't seem to be quite the thing that they were touted to be in the beginning. And there's only a select few playing that game really, really well. And I just didn't feel like I was at that level where I like knew what I was doing enough to be able to go. Although I'm I'm stoked about crypto and decentralization. I, I think that's an interesting opportunity as well and could be something interesting for artists. But you know whether I talk about that more on the podcast, I'm not too sure. But it's something that I'm that I'm looking at. But yeah, look it, it, on the digital side of things. I mean, again, whatever this is a thing. Whatever helps get you there in that process. Because and I've got to mention this because somebody commented on this on on a video because I was starting a bit of a series called Sketch Zone, which was digital art on my YouTube channel, and I had this guy. Somebody commented and said. Um, Look, you keep saying this is a means to an end, but it is a art form in its own right. Please show a little more respect. I'm like, oh, well, yeah, it kind of got me a little bit. I'm like, I, and I didn't mean to be disrespectful at all, but I'm thinking, hang on, guy. You know, this, I, I don't think you, for all of us, it's a different thing. It's just, who's anyone to judge? This is your process and it's a way that you see that. And, and I just find that just so fascinating, you know? Um, and for me, yeah, it, it's a means to an end. I, I, I do look at digital art and digital artists, you know, as art and artists, but for me, I, I, I don't think I'm going to print out my, my, uh, digital designs and hang them on the wall. Um, maybe they're better suited for a t-shirt, <laughs> but, but they informed the painting and, and that was the necessary step that I had to go through. I, I, it's important to look for the edge though, isn't it? You know, whatever's going to help you get there, use that. Yeah. And that's, that's right. Uh, my, the Russian teacher I had early on, he kind of said like, you know, his job is to give you the skills, but he's like, at the end of the day, when you go out to make art, your only responsibility is to make the best art you can. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of liberating when you, you know, especially in the academic dogma centralized thing, or like you said, in the regular education system where it's got to be all about the idea like at the end of the day you just got to really be doing something for you authentically and then finding people that like it you know if you're going to make any money doing it anyway but that whole process is like it's it is kind of hardcore radical self and and digital is such a good playground because you don't have that that you know the kind of commitment phobia where it's just like okay here we go i'm gonna make that line and i can't get it off again like you know oil paint's really forgiving but it's still it's so nice to have that digital tool so i'm a huge proponent of it again i'm a nerd so i like that kind of stuff anyway um but yeah the law these all happen digitally now first and then i grid them i'm doing some new stuff with acrylic paints first so this is all interesting like, okay was this one magics? underpainted uh, underpainted with yes. acrylic first wow okay yes i mean every this is actually only halfway glazed and i'll tell you right now that i only started glazing it today and oh, wow. i only glazed it for probably four hours so all of that color work that you're seeing in the background took mm -hmm. less than four hours to do 
Hang so on. that's Co color work. It, you mean color at all? Was it like a grisaille, like black and white first? Yep. yep. Wow. What you're seeing down here, that's still grisaille. There's no color there yet. Um, so this piece is not even not even close to being done, really. I've got many, many, many hours of work to do, but that that is acrylic paint. It's an acrylic grisaille. And yeah, this is kind of my new crazy radical witchcraft thing. Um because <laughs> yeah, it's 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 new and it's something that I've been experimenting with and it's, it's super fun. I think it's great to be trying out new things. Um, and, and a part of that process for me has been, you know, trying to recognize shortcomings. So I really struggle with texture and trying to make paintings that have more oomph to them, you know, and I would try with these quick dry oil paints and oil grisailles have always bugged the hell out of me because you have to sit there and wait for a week or two for this thing to tack up. And then any paint you add to that has to be, you know, fattened up. So you're working that fat over lean element. And I hated it. Like, so the grisaille I knew wasn't working for me. And that process was, was unenjoyable. So this new thing I'm doing, I'm actually liking much, much more because it's allowing me to build texture and body with the acrylic paint, adding these like texture paste and super fun, fast drying, responsive things that are giving this painting so much more fun. While I'm only worrying about the drawing and value, which is also makes the process much more fun because I'm not getting super heady with my color and depth and atmosphere. It's like just value. It's just drawing to me at that point. So I'm, I'm able to like juggle one ball. And then after it dries, which again takes a day, you know, you give acrylic some cure time, but it's really pretty fast. I can go straight in with washy oil paint and build my normal oil paint layers up as I would. So it's felt super fun, super responsive. And yeah, it's it's new and spooky. I'm not sure I'm going to stick with it all the time. Like this painting back here was done just, you know, oil paint directly, but it's yeah, kind of my new crazy thing I'm I'm experimenting with. That is so exciting. That's really exciting because I mean, from from what you're saying, from just looking at the piece right now, it looks so resolved. Uh, mind you, it's just a little bit through a, a, a screen on, on Zoom, and Zoom video quality is not that great yet. But still, I'm looking at that and I'm just shocked. I, I just did a grisaille uh, for a painting I was doing to Monument Valley in oils on a copper panel. And, and I could so relate to what you were saying because I was waiting for weeks and weeks for this thing to dry. And I got in touch with with Ray Aslan, who, who makes these panels. And I said, look, what am I doing wrong, bro? Because I... <laughs> You know, it's not dry. What's going on? He said, I'll run through the colors that you used. And I was like, okay, lead white, uh, a permanent crimson. And then I also used um, cobalt blue. And he's like, there's a problem. You know, that cobalt's going to take a while. I'm like, ah, of course I, I knew that, but ah, I didn't do it. But still. It's all about the, the raw umber, man. Raw umber is the, is the Grisai secret weapon. Yeah, and, and and a lot of my my new ones will be with those those earth tones. And I, you know, it's funny. I don't use a lot of raw umber. I, I'm a big fan of the burnt umber, but I, I'll try the raw umber. I'll try that. But I think um, probably any of the umbers they I know that the dry time is is actually you have to be careful glazing with raw umber because it's such a finicky color. They have to over oil the crap out of it sometimes just to get it to not dry. Because yeah, it's always just trying to get chalked up 
Yeah. So, but it's it does go fast. And with acrylic paint, I mean, this is another acrylic grisaille I can show you back here. We're getting the tour here, folks. This is phenomenal. That one is beautiful. Another wow. the next yeah. piece. So it's there is warms in there, like there's yellow ochre mixed in with my acrylic. Um, right. Just acrylic yellow ochre. So this is still just all acrylic underpainting, but now I'm freed up to do color as I want to, and it just mm. it just feels like a it's an extra step, but it seems like it's a step that that actually makes that process faster. And like I said, you know, well begun is half done. This feels like some of that preemptive attack stuff that if I can get my everything in the right place it's go time. And, and then you don't have to worry about it so much. Like right now I'm just painting color and it feels like I'm just having a ball. I'm not thinking the drawings all in the values are good enough. I'm freaking just able to have fun rendering rocks and forms and getting my light to bounce and, and creating those atmospheric colors. I don't have to juggle everything at once, which is such a, um, it just makes the process more joyful for me at this point. That's fantastic. I, I, I'm, I'm experiencing a little bit of a mental shift here for myself thinking, okay, maybe there's another way around this. This is really, you're inspiring me right now. This is really cool. I don't know that I could stoop to that low of having to get out the acrylics, but. <laughs> I know, I know. I had to, oh, I had to buy some for this community art event I did. They were like, okay, this, you know, you have to do acrylic for this thing. Cause it, it was this painting it was going to go hang in the, in the, in a business locally. So it was like this you know, just community art thing, like one of those yes man things where it's like, I didn't make any money at it, but I was a part of my art community and I, I love that. But anyway, the push, I got this acrylic and was like, man, I hate this. I hate acrylic paint. And it's so frustrating and like you're fighting it all the time. And it wasn't until like, I kind of had this chain of ahas where it's like, well, I hate how long black and white takes when I'm doing oil, but I like how fast these acrylics would dry if I didn't have to deal with color. I was like, well, you don't even have to glaze. Like I was getting these weird glaze mediums for the acrylic paint, doing everything I could to try to push acrylic into the oil family. And that failed. It was still frustrating. You know, it dries in 20 minutes. So like all of a sudden it was like, oh no, I can do the black and white in acrylic where everything's working how I want it to. And I can do the color in oil and have a full day to mess around and shift these tones. And, and then as soon as they dry, I can go through with impasto because they're actually... I'm still building a healthy paint layering instead of, you know, mixing up those fat over lean things. So it's been, I'm hoping, you know, this is still new. Like this is probably only the fourth or fifth one I've done. So hopefully it's something that I've refined as a process and hopefully you guys can out there see, Oh, he's, you know, getting better at painting. Hopefully. That that's always the goal, isn't it? Uh, it? Although it's hard to imagine, I must admit, and I'm not saying that to blow smoke, man. But it's I, I'm just so excited to see where you go with your body of work. Um, so so how long then? Uh, and I get this question all the time, and it's so hard to answer because it depends on what you're painting. But how long would a 36 by 48 take you, given the the recent change in your process? Well, yeah, that's that's it's it's an important question and it is but the answer that i've always loved uh, you know say the right answer to that question is for me to make this painting in the time it did it's taken me every painting i did up to that point so it's taken me five years or you know whatever people come up with that number and that is the right answer for when art collectors try to bug me about it um but then as a professional it's obviously my goal is to make it as fast as i can you know and as good as i can it's always those are things that they fight each other sometimes, but this experimentation is definitely driven by that, you know, okay, there's problems with working all a prima. 
uh, you know, there's things I could do within a day or two while that paint's wet. And then I have to start getting into the layering or glazing and, and modifying things that way. So, uh, you know, something I've, I've thought about just as a side note to this, but it's, it is helpful. It's helped me out a lot, but like when we see dancers perform or an actor, it's like, you don't see all the rehearsal lines. You don't see all of the tripping and falling down. They do over each other that happens being up to that performance. So when it comes to like this piece or a show, I've done my rehearsing, you know, whether it's in the iPad, sketching out my stuff or in the valuing and the, the transfer process. Like I want this thing to feel like a performance without a hook and to make it fast and to make that flawless is actually the goal. Um, you know, it's not to sit there and toil over it. And, you know, I think there's this kind of like romantic image of like an artist just beating their head out and their painting. And it's like, that's stupid. You don't want to do that. Like if you're doing that and you have a deadline or you have a gallery wanting good work from you, then you are sabotaging yourself. Like do that, do it creatively and, and in your process when it's a safer space to do it, but don't do it while there's a deadline hanging, you know, don't do it while you're got, you know, this is hopefully going to be in some magazines and stuff. Like I don't have time to get lost and confused with what I'm doing. So all that said, I probably spent about 12 hours painting the black and white underpainting on it. Yeah. You know, I probably say another four or five hours tweaking the design and messing around. So probably getting close to that, like 20 hours, but then today it's like four hours and the color's halfway done. Hopefully I'll have, you know, I'll work probably till nine o'clock tonight and then some tomorrow. And I'm hoping the color will be kind of getting good and be done, you know? So 40 hours is my goal, maybe. Incredible. But I might run into some problems with it. You know, some of that stuff, you, as things dry, you know, you might be like, oh, crap, I got to work on that area more. And I tend to kind of do this funneling system as I'm finishing work. And, you know, the process, the critiquing process, like the self-critiquing process is where you kind of step back and you look at it. And it's like, I kind of, we do these things with figure drawing where you're like washing your eye over it. So you don't try to look carefully, but you just let the eye wash. And then like, if something grabs it, if you're like, Ooh, that, that green is too saturated or, Ooh, that edge is too hard. Or yeah, that cloud is bad. Like then you just do that and do that and do that and do that. And eventually the time span gets longer. Right. So I'm there painting for five hours, but I've probably only made 15 changes instead of the original block in time where I'm just hacking at it and you see all this progress. You know, the last part where you're just really changing super, super subtle things, just pushing a form back, you know, tweaking a tree, changing a drawing bit, you know, you're just that finishing phase is so tedious sometimes. But again, I'm hoping through proper uh, lead up work, I, don't, I avoid some of that really tedious stuff at the end. Fantastic, man. Well, that's inspiring to me. I mean, definitely, I can, uh, I, I, I could safely say, well, just watch this space because you, you've, yeah, you, you've inspired me to maybe play with a few more things, maybe stick with the grisaille a little bit longer because I'm just blown away that that level of detail and rendering and and just finesse over some of those fine points within that landscape and the amount of time, like I. I, you know, anyone looking at that could just go easily four times the amount of time that you're, you're, you're saying, but incredible, inspiring stuff. Hey, Kenneth, this is, this has been such an inspiring conversation. I, I always like to, to wrap up these podcasts um, because it's something that I find I get obsessed with and maybe, maybe it's a bit of a waste of time 
But at the same time, maybe it's necessary to kind of reflect on one's life and trajectory in, in their art career. But the more I'm learning now, the more I'm kind of thinking, man, if I knew this 10 years ago, what would I be doing different? You know, what would my life look like today? So let me ask you, if you could go back to your, your younger you know, self 10 years from this point now back, what would you tell yourself? What are some of the things that you would do different? I mean, are you, are you happy or, or satisfied or you know, content at least in the place that you're in now? Or would you like to be further ahead? And maybe a bit of a painful question there, but how, what would you have done differently 10 years ago to anticipate this moment now? You know, the, the biggest, I mean, I, I really like, you know, the advice I've had from galleries and, and even just in the mentoring element of watching other artists, I have a lot of uh, grace for myself, I guess. Like I'm still so young, even though I'm in my thirties now, it's like in the fine art world, that's nothing. You're still so young. Like to think of myself in my twenties, trying to take myself seriously it's like, man, just, just be where you are and like stay learning and stay curious. And the biggest thing that like, you know, part of this, this process, you know, not, not believing some of the narratives that I did let run the show early on, whether it was that kind of academia, like you have to work from life thing or the, you know, cause I really love Richard Schmidt and some of the really cool brushy impressionistic stuff that like I do love, but it was not true to me. And if I had, could have liberated myself earlier from that you know like one of the, the things that i hear with students and other people where it's like oh you can overwork it you can it's like that's totally up to you like there's not some perfect painting that like you can miss or hit like it's like you have to throw this like target like you make that thing you craft every bit of it and you can go back and craft it i mean if that's your aesthetic you really want like a one and done thing then like yeah that's a little different but for me i've found so much more joy in this process by just like doing what I like and and painting it to whatever I enjoy whether it's too detailed for some people or not colorful enough for some people it's like I don't care I don't have to care like I found people that want to buy it so that's cool like being more accepting of like my own vision you know because I think that would allow me to be more more applying to that instead of getting confused by things and confused by those mixed inputs and especially if they aren't your mentors, you know, people you really love and admire their work, then definitely listen to them. But I was letting anybody critique my stuff and it would all hurt or, you know, steer you in some way. So now, yeah, I would go back and kind of be like, it's okay, kid, you know, like. You got this. Okay to, yeah, yeah. And, and I got to kind of tell it to myself now, even that like five year ahead, I got to be like, all right, Ken, you know, you're just here in the dugout right now and you got to keep painting. And and that's, that's, I think it's hard for artists to be faithful in that because it is, it is a scary world and it's hard to financially put your skin on the, your neck on the line, but the more authentic you are, the more likely you're going to be successful. If you're trying to copy somebody else or you're, you know, that's one of the things I did also took advice from a gallery guy who's, you know, don't, don't emulate living painters. And that's the thing I have with Instagram even is like trying to follow all these artists and seeing great art that these modern guys are making can be a little distracting. So I find myself now, you know, looking through my library at the old dead guys and trying to, trying to keep that aim really high and just be like this, you know, what's going to be in a museum someday. What's that, that 
level that you're talking about the humans whether they speak the same language or not can see and feel something like that's that's some cool art that's some powerful stuff and you don't get there by worrying about deadlines you don't get there by trying to be better than the guys in the magazines like you got to just like live to that high point and and yeah that's a mixed that's not just like one thing you do right it's a whole combination of ways to live that's uh, what a what a perfect way to uh, to end this podcast um I, I gotta say it's been a massive pleasure uh, just such an honor to talk to you and and share this studio time with you and thank you so yeah, much likewise. for uh, for for showing us your paintings um kenneth yours man thank you for being on the creative endeavor thank you for having me andrew Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of the Creative Endeavor Podcast. I really hope you've enjoyed this episode. And if you have, don't go anywhere. Please leave me a rating or a review on whatever podcast app you're listening on. It makes a huge difference to the show. I'm excited to bring more episodes to you very soon here in season three. The podcast is back. And I'm really glad to have more episodes coming your way and plenty more inspiring stories to share. Now, if you're not already following Kenneth online, make sure you do that now. He can be found on his website at www.kennethyarris.com and on Instagram at Kenneth Yaris. And that last name is spelt Y-A-R-U-S. Huge shout out and thank you to Kenneth for joining me in this episode. Are you feeling pumped? Are you feeling inspired? I sure hope so. It doesn't matter who we talk to, what professional artists we find out there, if they're out there doing it and they got a story to tell, we'll talk to them and we'll uncover some of the strategies that they employ in their individual unique creative journeys and get those little nuggets and takeaways that we can apply to our own art businesses. I'm Andrew Tischler. It has been a pleasure having your company here in this podcast. If you want to go ahead and follow me online, I can be found on Instagram. Just search my name or at my website, www.andrewtischler.com. But also don't forget, you can always find the exclusive video version of the podcast on my online academy. And just follow that link through the description that accompanies this episode. I'm going to get out of here and get back to painting. Thanks so much for spending this time here with me. And Kenneth, I'll see you again in the next episode.